Section 10 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 10, Part 1, John Hancock. Boston september thirtieth seventeen sixty five gent since by last i have received your favour by captain holm who has arrived here with the most disagreeable commodity say stamps that were imported into this country and what if carried into execution will entirely stagnate trade here for it is universally determined here never to submit to it and the principal merchants here will by no means carry on business under a stamp we are in the utmost confusion here and shall be more so after the first of november and nothing but the repeal of the act will righten the consequence of its taking place here will be bad and attended with many troubles and i believe may say more fatal to you than us i dread the event extract from hancock's letter book long ago when society was young learning was centred in one man in each community and that man was the priest it was the priest who was sent for in every emergency of life he taught the young prescribed for the sick advised those who were in trouble and when human help was vain and man had done his all this priest knelt at the bedside of the dying and invoked a power with whom it was believed he had influence the so-called learned professions are only another example of the division of labor we usually say that there are three learned professions theology medicine and law as to which is the greatest is a much mooted question and has caused too many family feuds for me to attempt to decide it and so i evade the issue and say there is a fourth profession that is only allowed to be called so by grace but which in my mind is greater than them all the profession of teacher i can conceive of a condition of society so high and excellent that it has no use for either doctor lawyer or preacher but the teacher would still be needed ignorance and sin supply the three learned professions their excuse for being but the teacher's work is to develop the germ of wisdom that is in every soul and now each of these professions has divided up like monads into many heads in medicine we have as many specialists as there are organs of the body the lawyer who advises you in a copyright or patent cause knows nothing about admiralty and as they tell us a man who pleads his own case has a fool for a client so does the insurance lawyer who is retained to foreclose a mortgage in all prosperous city churches the preacher who attracts the crowd in the morning allows apprentice to preach to the young folks in the evening he does not make pastoral calls and the curate who reads the service at funerals is never called upon to perform a marriage ceremony except in a case of charity likewise the teacher's profession has its specialists the man who teaches greek well cannot write good english the man who teaches composition is baffled and perplexed by long division 
and the teacher who delights in trigonometry pooh-poohs the kindergartner just where this evolutionary dividing and subdividing of social cells will land the race no man can say but that a specialist is a dangerous man is sure he is a buzzsaw with which wise men never monkey a surgeon who has operated for appendicitis five times successfully is above all to be avoided i once knew a man with lung trouble who inadvertently strayed into an oculist's and was looked over and sent away with an order on an optician and should you through error stray into the office of a nose and throat specialist and ask him to treat you for varicose veins he would probably do so by nasal douche even now a specialist in theology will lead us if he can a merry ignis fatuus chase and land us in a morass the only thing that saved the priest in days agone was the fact that he had so many duties to perform that he exercised all his mental muscles and thus attained a degree of all-roundness which is not possible to the specialist even then there were not lacking men who found time to devote to specialties bishop georgius ambrosius for instance who in the fifteenth century produced a learned work proving that women have no souls and a like book was written at nashville tennessee in eighteen hundred fifty nine by the rev hubert parsons of the methodist episcopal church south showing that negroes were in a like predicament but in a more notable instance of the danger of a specialty is the rev cotton mather who investigated the subject of witchcraft and issued a modest brochure incorporating his views on the subject he succeeded in convincing at least one man of its verity and that man was himself and thus immortality was given to the town of salem which otherwise would have no claim on us for remembrance save that hawthorne was once a clerk in its customs house a very slight study of colonial history will show any student that for two centuries the ministers in new england occupied very much the same position in society that the priests did during the middle ages as the monks kept learning from dying off the face of the earth so did the ministers of the new world preserve culture from passing into forgetfulness very seldom indeed were books to be found in a community except at the ministers and during the seventeenth century and well into the eighteenth he combined in himself the offices of doctor lawyer preacher and teacher mr lowell has said i cannot remember when there was not one or more students in my father's household and others still who came at regular intervals to recite and this was the usual custom it was the minister who fitted boys for college and no youth was ever sent away to school until he had been drilled by the local clergyman and it must further be noted that genealogical tables show that very nearly all of the eminent men of new england were sons of ministers or of an ancestry where ministers names are seen at frequent intervals as an intellectual and moral force the minister has now but a rudiment of the power he once exercised the tendency to specialize all art and all knowledge has to a degree shorn him of his strength and to such an extent is this true that within forty years it has passed into a common proverb 
that the sons of clergymen are rascals whereas in colonial days the highest recommendation a youth could carry was that he was the son of a minister the rev john hancock grandfather of john hancock the patriot was for more than half a century the minister of lexington massachusetts i say the minister because there was only one the keen competition of sect that establishes half a dozen preachers in a small community is a very modern innovation john hancock bishop of lexington was a man of pronounced personality as is plainly seen in his portrait in the boston museum of fine arts they say he ruled the town with a rod of iron and when the young men who adorned the front steps of the meeting-house during service grew disorderly he stopped in his prayer and going outside soundly cuffed the ears of the first delinquent he could lay hands upon in his clay there was a dash of facetiousness that saved him from excess supplying a useful check to his zeal for zeal uncurbed is very bad he was a wise and beneficent dictator and government under such one cannot be improved upon his manner was gracious frank and open and such was the specific gravity of his nature that his words carried weight and his wish was sufficient the house where this fine old autocrat lived and reigned is standing in lexington now when you walk out through cambridge and arlington on your way to concord following the road the british took on their way out to concord you will pass by it it is a good place to stop and rest you will know the place by the tablet in front on which is the legend here john hancock and samuel adams were sleeping on the night of the eighteenth of april seventeen hundred seventy five when aroused by paul revere the rev jonas clark owned the house after the rev john hancock and the ministries of those two men and their occupancy of the house cover one hundred years and five years more here the thirteen children of jonas clark were born and all lived to be old men and women when you call there i hope you will be treated with the same gentle courtesy that i met if you delay not your visit too long you will see a fine motherly woman with white sausage curls and a high back comb wearing a check dress and felt slippers and she will tell you that she is over eighty and that when her mother was a little girl she once sat on governor hancock's knee and he showed her the works in his watch and then as you go away you will think again of what the old lady has just told you and as you look back for a parting glance at the house standing firm and solemn in its rusty gray dignity you will doff your hat to it and mayhap murmur the days of man on earth they are but as a passing shadow here john hancock and samuel adams were sleeping when aroused by paul revere merchant prince and agitator horse and rider where are you now and is your sleep disturbed by dreams of british redcoats or hissing flintlocks phantom british warships may lie at their moorings swinging wide on the unforgetting tide lanterns may hang high in the belfry of the old north church tower hurried knocks and calls of defiance and hoof-beats of fast-galloping steed may echo and echo again borne on the night wind of the dim past but you heed them not 
the reverend john hancock of lexington had two sons john hancock number two became pastor of the church of the north precinct of the town of braintree which afterwards was to be the town of quincy the nearest neighbor to the village preacher was john adams shoemaker and farmer each sunday in the amen corner of the reverend john hancock's meeting-house was mustered the well-washed and combed brood of mr and mrs adams now this john adams had a son whom the reverend john hancock baptized also named john two years older than john the son of the preacher and young john adams and john hancock number three used to fish and swim together and go nutting and set traps for squirrels and help each other in fractions and then they would climb trees and wrestle and sometimes fight in the fights they say john hancock used to get the better of his antagonist but as an exploiter of fractions john adams was more than his equal the parents of john adams were industrious and savin the little farm prospered for boston supplied a goodly market and weekly trips were made there in a one-horse cart often piloted by young john with the minister's boy for ballast the adams family had ambitions for their son john he was to go to harvard and be educated and be a minister and preach at braintree or weymouth or perhaps even boston in the meantime the reverend john hancock had died and the widowed mother was not able to give her boy a college education times were hard but the lad's uncle thomas hancock a prosperous merchant of boston took quite an interest in young john and it occurred to him to adopt the fatherless boy legally as his own the mother demurred but after some months decided that it was best so for when twenty-one he would be her boy just as much and as truly as if his uncle had not adopted him and so the rich uncle took him and rigged him out with a deal finer clothing than he had ever before worn and sent him to the latin school and afterward over to cambridge with silver jingling in his pocket prosperity is a severe handicap to youth not very many grown men can stand it but beyond a needless display of velvet coats and frilled shirts the young man stood the test and got through harvard in point of scholarship he did not stand so high as john adams and between the lads there grew a small but well-defined gulf as is but natural between homespun and broadcloth still the gulf was not impassable for over it friendly favors were occasionally passed john hancock's mother wanted him to be a preacher but uncle thomas would not listen to it the youth must be taught to be a merchant so he could be the ready helper and then the successor of his foster father graduating at the early age of seventeen john hancock at once went to work in his uncle's counting-house in boston he was a fine tall fellow with dash and spirit and seemed to show considerable aptitude for the work the business prospered and uncle thomas was very proud of his handsome ward who was quite in demand at parties and balls and in a general social way while the uncle could not dance a minuet to save him not needing the young man very badly around the store the uncle sent him to europe to complete his education by travel he went with the retiring governor Pownall, whose taste for social enjoyment 
was very much in accord with his own in england he attended the funeral of george the second and saw the coronation of george the third little thinking the while that he would some day make violent efforts to snatch from that crown its brightest jewel when young hancock was twenty-seven the uncle died and left to him his entire fortune of three hundred fifty thousand dollars it made him one of the very richest men in the colony for at that time there was not a man in massachusetts worth half a million dollars the jingling silver in his pocket when sent to harvard had severely tested his moral fibre but this great fortune came near smothering all his native common sense if a man makes his money himself he stands a certain chance of growing as the pile grows there is little doubt as to the soundness of emerson's epigram that what you put into his chest you take out of the man more than this when a man gradually accumulates wealth it attracts little attention so the mob that follows the newly rich never really gets on to the scent and besides that the man who makes his own fortune always stands ready to repel boarders there may be young men of twenty-seven who are men grown and no doubt every man of twenty-seven is very sure that he is one of these but the thought that man is mortal never occurs to either men or women until they are past thirty the blood is warm conquest lies before and to seize the world by the tail and snap its head off seems both easy and desirable the promoters the flatterers and friends until then unknown flocked to hancock and condoled with him on the death of his uncle some wanted small loans to tide over temporary emergencies others had business ventures in hand whereby john hancock could double his wealth very shortly still others spoke of wealth being a trust and to use money to help your fellow men and thus to secure the gratitude of many was the proper thing the unselfishness of the latter suggestion appealed to hancock to be the friend of humanity to assist others this is the highest ambition to which a man can aspire and of course if one is pointed out on the street as the good mr hancock it cannot be helped it is the penalty of well-doing so in order to give work to many and to promote the interests of boston a thriving city of fifteen thousand inhabitants for all good men wished to build up the place in which they live john hancock was induced to embark in shipbuilding he also owned several ships of his own which traded with london and the west indies and was part owner of others but he publicly explained that he did not care to make money for himself his desire was to give employment to the worthy poor and to enhance the good of boston the aristocratic company of militia known as the governor's guard had been fitted out with new uniforms and arms by the generous hancock and he had been chosen commanding officer with rank of colonel he drilled with the crack company and studied the manual much more diligently than he had ever his bible hancock lived in the mansion inherited from his uncle on beacon street facing the common there was a chariot and six horses for state occasions much fine furniture from over the sea elegant clothes that the puritans called gaudy apparel and at the dinners the wine flowed freely and cards dancing and music filled many a night 
the puritan neighbors were shocked and held up their hands in horror to think that the son of a minister should so affront the staid and sober customs of his ancestors still others said why that's what a rich man should do spend his money of course hancock is the benefactor of his kind just see how many people he employs the town was all agog and hancock was easily boston's first citizen but in his time of prosperity he did not forget his old friends he sent for them to come and make merry with him and among the first in his good offices was john adams the rising young lawyer of braintree john adams had found clients scarce and those he had poor pay but when he became the trusted legal adviser of john hancock things took a turn and prosperity came that way the wine and cards and dinners hadn't much attraction for him but still there were no conscientious scruples in the way he patted john hancock on the back assured him that he was the people looked after his interests loyally and extracted goodly fees for services performed end of part one section ten